Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Of all the teachings of the Bible, we are told the one that Christ considered most important. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know the meaning of life and how we are called to live. The message of the Bible, the greatest commandment, and the most important to Christ, is the commandment for us to love God and love all. Like many of you, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was watching the Kennedy Center Awards. I, I always enjoy them. You hear about these wonderful people who've had such an impact on our culture, our society. This year we were honoring George Clooney, Gladys Knight, Tanya Leone, the band U2, as well as Amy Grant. And it was interesting that Amy Grant was a part of this group because Amy Grant is the first Christian performer to ever be honored by the Kennedy Center Awards. She was the first Christian performer to ever have an album go platinum. Amy Grant has sold more than 30 million albums. She's been nominated for 20 Grammys. She has won 20 Dove Awards through the Christian Music Association. Phenomenal performer. And it all started in church. She loved growing up in church. It turned out they went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. She's in church all the time. And she loved it because she felt like in church she was welcomed, she was accepted, she was loved on. Church was a good place where she felt secure. It was through all of her singing at church that in the end she was given, signed to a Christian uh, music label back in actually um, before she was 16 years old. While she was 15, they signed her to her first label record. She cut her first album right before she turned 18 years old. She was soon giving concerts, a young lady in her 20s, and she was packing the house. I was watching uh, her being uh, reviewed and, and this reporter talking about her and said, you know, Amy Grant's just different. She comes out on stage. She dances around. She's barefoot. She's wearing leather pants and a leopard top. And she sings about Jesus. 
It's not what people expected when they went to a Christian concert. But boy, people loved it, and she really brought it. In the mid-1980s, she actually started trying her hand at pop music, contemporary pop music, not just Christian music, but now pop. And that didn't settle well with some of her Christian supporters. They felt she needed to be singing Christian music, not pop music. There was a 1991 that she really came out with a crossover album. It was called um, Heart in Motion. And it had songs like Baby, Baby. I remember them well. And you know, the fascinating thing is, again, she had so much pushback from her Christian base when she began singing these contemporary pop music. They really came out against her on Baby, Baby feeling like she was just going too far. The fascinating thing is the song Baby Baby actually was written for her daughter who was born. It was written about her baby. Now it can be listened to as, ah, this is about love between a man and a woman, but no, it really was written for her baby who had been born and this incredible love that she would always have for her child. Go back and listen to it through different ears and hear how it really comes off to you. But whenever you're a celebrity and whenever you're out there in public, you don't get to decide how people are going to hear the things you say and do. And so she was judged on what other people decided it was about and whether it was appropriate or inappropriate. And she had some real pushback on that as she was doing it. She had married Gary Chapman back when she was 21 years old. Gary Chapman was a singer, songwriter, Christian singer and songwriter. And the truth of the matter is, after they'd been married for two years, she knew she had made a mistake. But because she believed it was her Christian responsibility, she stayed with him for another 15 years. They had three children. Is finally after being married for 17 years, she could not do it anymore, and she filed for divorce. And Gary was coming out and saying very much how he didn't want a divorce. It's all Amy. He began accusing her of having an affair, all kinds of things. But just regardless, the fact that she was getting a divorce went against all of the Christian ideals of a more conservative church. And so her music was pulled from Christian bookstores, People who'd been playing her music in their homes pulled it. It was really a hard time for her. Now what would come out later would be, Gary would finally admit years later, he was so very jealous of Amy that he too was a singer and a performer and she was getting all this publicity and she was a star and he felt like he was in her shadow all the time. And he really was jealous and felt threatened by her success. Before they were married, he was already doing cocaine and marijuana. And as he began to feel all the jealousy and insecurity, it ramped up the drug use. And if you're feeling threatened and insecure and you're now getting into drugs, of course that will lead to verbal abuse, attacking other people because you don't feel good about yourself. All that wasn't coming out when this was going on. It would all come out later 
and it reminds me so much of you never know what's going on behind closed doors. You don't know what it's really like to live with somebody. We all feel very comfortable judging other people when we see them struggling. We all judge other people, whether it's famous public people or whether it's our friends. And yet you don't know what life is like. It was so hard on her and people didn't know the story. She kept on singing, kept on writing. She married Vince Gill. She had three children. He had one. They now had one child together, a girl. Five children together. They raised their family. They've now been married more than 20 years. Very, very happy. It was this fall that she was out riding her bicycle. And you may have read about it, how she had an accident, hit a pothole, and it threw her over the handlebars. She landed on her head. If she hadn't been wearing a helmet, she'd be dead. As it was, she was knocked unconscious for 10 minutes. They rushed her to the hospital. And there in the hospital, uh, they worked literally to save her life. She made it through, but whenever she came home, she found that quite often she'd see somebody and couldn't remember their name. She found she'd be trying to sing a song and she couldn't remember the words to the song she had written and sung hundreds of times. It took a while for it all to start coming back and the recovery to be there. The doctor suggested that she stop for three months, not give concerts, don't be doing things, just let your brain, your body, and your soul heal. And so that's what she did. She took the time off and she now looks at this accident and says, what a blessing. What a blessing at 62 years old. She said, I was able to stop and truly let myself heal to remember what my values are and what matters and what's important to me. It's really the very thing that you and I are supposed to be doing as we start the new year, taking time to evaluate who we are, our dreams, our goals, our values as we move into this new year. That's what she's been doing. But then, like she has done so many times, she really helped to stir the pot again. She recently announced that she and Vince wanted to host the wedding of Amy's niece. They're on their 450-acre farm right outside of Nashville. And she said, you know, my niece is such a good, loving Christian. And she is gay. And of course, among so many of the conservative Christians, that brought a real response. And I want to read you what she said. I know that the religious community has not been very welcoming to the LGBT community. But I just want to stress that the journey of faith brings us into community. It is really about one relationship. The journey of faith is being willing and open to have a relationship with God. I always say Jesus narrowed it down to two things. Love God and love each other. I mean, hey, that's pretty simple. 
I think she's right. That's why this morning I want to start a new sermon series and I want to talk about the theme for the year, which is love God and love all. We really get the theme from Jesus being asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? You see, the Jews of Jesus' day had 600 plus laws they're supposed to be following. And so it was a common thing that people would sit around and say, so what's the most important commandment? And they came and asked Jesus, what would you say is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. That is, all the laws were given, the 600 plus laws were given, and the prophets came and prophesied so that you could learn to love God and love each other. That's the most important thing. It's what it's been all about. It really is that simple. And so what I want us to focus on for the next seven weeks is I wanted to look at Paul's letters to his churches because Paul had a dream. A dream, his goal, starting a church, the church, and he would do that by going to Thessalonica and Philippi and Ephesus, all these churches, all these cities starting churches, and then he wrote them letters to tell them what he believed was most important and what should they be doing. And so I thought it would be helpful if for the next seven weeks we look at seven different places that Paul went, churches that he started, and then letters that he wrote to them telling them what matters, what's important. What do we need to do to be the church? And I wanted us to start today with Paul's letter to the Galatians because it's one of the first that he wrote. He wrote it, we believe, in the late 40s, the early 50s, one of the first that he wrote. And when he wrote to the Galatians, he isn't writing to a specific city like Ephesus or Corinth. No, he's writing to an area. The area was Galatia. And there were many churches in Galatia. And so he's writing this letter to this group of people, several churches, and they were supposed to take the letter and pass it around. And Paul was trying to tell them, what do you need to do to truly be a church? What do you need to do in your life to live in such a way that you are sharing God's love and bringing hope in the world? So I want us to look at this letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning, to see what he says and I think there are three important things that I want to read to you, each of these scriptures. First of all, if you read in the second chapter, the ninth and tenth verse, we read, When they perceived, they, being James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter and John, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, of the church in Jerusalem, who are reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised, only they would have us remember the poor, which very thing I was eager to do. That is such a significant statement. What was going on in Galatia was a debate, this theological debate do Gentiles 
have to become Jews like Jesus in order to become Christian. And James and Peter and John were saying, yes, Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be Christians. Paul was saying, Gentiles, the Greeks, they can just become Christian and they don't have to become Jews first. That's a significant theological difference. And do you notice what happened? Even though they dramatically disagreed, they said, give me the right hand of fellowship. We both remember our goal is to share Christ, to start the church. It's just like John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, saying, if you love Christ and you love your neighbor, give me the right hand of fellowship. That's what's happening here. A 180 degree difference in opinion theologically, and they said, we'll go to the circumcised, the Jews, you go to the Gentiles. We disagree on what needs to happen here, but we're not going to forget the greatest thing is to share God's love. And that will mean don't forget the poor. Because if you know God's love, if you have felt God's grace, then you will have compassion, especially for the poor. Don't forget the poor, they said to Paul. I saw a great story recently about a lady named uh, Talia, Talia Thomas. She actually lived up in Brooklyn, Minnesota. And Talia worked there at the Brooklyn, uh, the new Brooklyn liquor store. And one day, it was wintertime, obviously it's snowing and cold in Minnesota, her boss noticed that Talia was working that day in her socks. And he thought, good grief, it's freezing outside, snowing, you're not in your shoes, you're just working in your socks? He didn't say anything to her, she didn't say anything, she worked all day long and finally came quitting time. She lived about a block there from the store and so she headed out home through the snow. Something just nagged at him, though, that didn't make sense. And so he went back and looked at the security footage there at the store. And what he found was when they opened the store that morning, a homeless man came into the store asking for some cardboard and string because he didn't have any shoes. And he wanted to make some sort of a makeshift shoe to try to make it in the snow. And when Talia saw what he was doing, she immediately took off her tennis shoes, which happened to be her Air Jordans. Now, if you don't know tennis shoes, those are nice tennis shoes. And these happen to be very special tennis shoes because they were purple because she's such a big fan of the Minnesota Vikings football team. So she gave this man, this stranger, her purple Michael Jordan, Air Jordan tennis shoes. And they happened to fit perfectly. And she knew, I have another pair of shoes, not Air Jordans at home, but I had another pair of shoes. And this man had nothing. So she gave them to him. And she didn't say a word to a soul. She didn't intend to say a word to a soul. But it was her boss who figured out what happened, and he told the world. He put it on social media. So all people knew what happened there at his liquor store. The next day, one of the patrons 
brought by a box with a new pair of Air Jordans and some gift cards for all the other people in her family. And then the next day, the, the local Brooklyn shelter homeless program came by and said, we really believe you're getting so much publicity, we'd like to put some collection barrels out here in front of the liquor store and let it be um, the, the Thalia Thomas Collection Center. And sure enough, when they put them out there and went on social media, people are bringing coats and scarves and shoes and dropping them off there at the liquor store. And then the next day, a package arrived from Nike with three pairs of Air Jordans for Thalia. And then the next day, the Vikings showed up and they brought her a pair of tickets. She had never been to a Vikings football game, could not afford it. They said, we want you to come and be our guest. She was so overwhelmed by all this response and what was going on and she got interviewed. And I want to read you what she said about it. She said, I feel like giving that man a pair of shoes is like I planted a seed in the soil and now it's blooming to something more beautiful. I want to keep planting seeds so that it's blooming all over. I want to become as great as my mom when she was helping everybody. I want to keep that same fire in my heart that I was born with and I don't want to stop until I've done something that makes me feel like a better person every day. to feel like a better person every day because you don't forget the poor, those who are in need. And we do not have to agree on everything theologically or politically. No, it really is about saying we've experienced the love of Christ in our own life, the gift of God's grace. And so we are moved with a sense of compassion to bless life. They gave each other the right hand of fellowship. And don't forget the poor. Secondly, Paul would say in the third chapter, the 27th and 28th verse, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Ah, that was the struggle there in Galatia. We had so many people from so many cultures. They spoke different languages. They had a different color of skin. They had different traditions. How does everybody come together as one? They had certain views of what's the role of men? What's the role of women? What is the role of Jews? What is the role of the Gentiles, the Greeks? What about the slave and the free? And so Paul's trying to say, we have to set all these other thoughts aside. There is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are called to treat each other with respect and a sense of dignity. I mean, that was such a tall order to be asking out of them. That's why this past week... I. Since it has a happy ending, I'm enjoying that story about Damar Hamlin. If you were watching last week on Monday Night Football, as I was, um, 
Marsh and I were in Colorado. We were curled up on the couch, having a romantic evening watching Monday Night Football. <laughs> yeah, maybe it wasn't that romantic, but we had fun watching Monday Night Football. And, and here it was in the first quarter when their safety, DeMar Hamlin, goes down. I mean, what a freak accident to think that he got hit in the chest at just the right moment in that heartbeat that it threw him into coronary arrest. And son of this young man was lying on the field and it was life or death. People did not know whether he was going to live or die. The way that people swarmed, they got him into an ambulance, took him to the Cincinnati hospital, had to intubate him, make, put him into a coma. You know, we didn't know for days if he was going to make it or what would have happened. And so literally across America, people have been listening and watching and waiting. And the good news is they've taken out the breathing tube and he seems to be responding and being okay mentally and physically, still in the hospital, still in critical condition. But it looks like it will have a good ending. I wanted to know more about him. And so I immediately started going online to learn more about his upbringing and who he was. I learned that he'd grown up right outside of Pittsburgh in McKee Rocks. It's an interesting place, about town of about 6,000 people, their own little community, and it has one of the highest crime rates in all of Pennsylvania. Great poverty, a real struggle. DeMar has many friends, childhood friends that he has known who have died in gun violence. But he was a kid who grew up really determined to do well, hard work ethic, He's incredibly compassionate towards other people. Went to a Catholic high school. He's a person of faith. And when he graduated, he had to decide. He was getting recruited literally across the country. Where are you going to go to school? And he decided he wanted to stay close to home. And he wanted to stay near that community. And so he went to Pitt. He went there because he wanted to have an influence on his community and say to other kids, you can get out. You can get a scholarship. We can make this happen. So while he is a, a college student, this is before you sign with the NFL or get drafted, this is a broke college student, starts a foundation chasing M's, which means chasing millions, for the whole idea of giving scholarships to kids in his community so they can go to school, having back-to-school drives, creating summer camps, buying toys for children, as he did not get, and his mother runs a daycare center. And so that's why he started a GoFundMe page a couple of years ago to raise $2,500 to buy toys for his mother's daycare for these kids. Well, he had never taken that down, and now people were learning more about him, and they realized here's this foundation and here's this GoFundMe page for $2,500 for toys, and people started sending in their money, and before they knew it, they'd collected a million dollars. And then it was two. And then it was four. Last I looked, it was over eight. And I just have to tell you, it made me feel so good to think this is who we are as a nation at this moment. And being able to say, we don't care about the color of a person's skin. We don't care if the person is a Buffalo Bill or a Cincinnati Bengal. We see humanity, a person who's involved in a terrible accident is fighting for life. 
and we wanted to care. There is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. When you looked at him, he's a kid who's trying to make a difference in the world. And something bad happened, and people said, we're going to care. How often you and I put on glasses with such prejudice and judgment of people, just like Paul struggled with 2,000 years ago. There is no Jew nor Greek. Is there no black or white? Have we struggled so much with the color of skin through the years? It was back in 1784 that the Methodist Episcopal Church was born in Baltimore. But it was in 1840 that the Methodist Church split over slavery. And we actually grew out of the Methodist Episcopal Church South. It would be 99 years, all the way until 1939, that the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South reunited. But we did reunite in a very segregated way so that white would not have to worship with black or brown or red. It would not be until 1968 that we would do away with all the structure that created separation because of prejudice. Not until 1968 would we finally encourage could black and white and brown and red all come together and worship together. We can struggle because of the color of skin. And there isn't male or female. Let me tell you, we've sure struggled with the role of women in leadership in the church. If you think about it, it wasn't just a hundred years ago we finally gave women the vote here in America. This past summer, Marsh and I went to a little country called Liechtenstein, right near Switzerland, and we found out that they gave the vote to women in 1984. Women didn't have the vote until 1984. We have struggled with whether women should be allowed to be pastors. We did not ordain a woman to be pastor in the United Methodist Church until 1974. But in many ways, I think that's pretty good considering this past summer, the Southern Baptist Convention had their big struggle in arguing, should a woman be allowed to be a pastor? And if we allow her to be a pastor, should we also allow her to preach? That was a discussion less than a year ago. We struggle with women and their role in the church and leadership. Have we not struggled with human sexuality? Whether we will ordain people who are gay or do same-sex weddings? That theological question has torn apart the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, and it's now come to the doorstep of the Methodist. Paul said, if we're going to be a church, if you want to live in a meaningful way, then it really is going to be about not always agreeing theologically, but you give each other the right hand to fellowship. You remember to care for the poor and have compassion. And you're going to look at each other with respect so that there's not Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. 
we are one in Christ. And so third, in the fifth fifth chapter, Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Obviously, Paul was leaning on Jesus giving the great commandment. And so Paul says to the early church, look, the whole law that we're fighting about, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if we in Galatia are so torn apart by all of our different backgrounds and beliefs that we can't remember the greater good of sharing God's love and bringing hope in the world, then it will tear us apart. To love your neighbor as yourself, to put yourself in somebody else's place, to treat others the way that you would want to be treated. I saw a story out of Fayetteville, North Carolina, about a Judge Lou Alvera, Alvera. Judge Lou Alvera had a man come before him. His name was Joe Cerna. And Joe Cerna had been convicted of a DUI. He'd been put on probation. And part of his probation was, you can't go out and drink. And then Joe failed a urine test. And so he was back in court in front of the judge. Judge Alvira knew some of Joe's background. Both of them had grown up there in Fayetteville. Joe had grown up there and he'd gone into the service. He'd served three tours in Afghanistan. He had earned two Purple Hearts. He had survived an IED. He had survived a terrorist bombing, suicide bombing. But one night he and three of his buddies were out on patrol And they were in a truck, and as they were going down the road, the road gave out underneath them, and the truck rolled down the hill and into the stream. It was at night. It was crushed. They couldn't get out. They couldn't see anything, but you could feel the water coming into the truck. It covered his ankles, and then over his knees. It came to his waist, up to his chest and finally to his chin. And it stopped. His three buddies drowned. Ultimately, he was rescued. He survived. But you can imagine what that did to him emotionally, psychologically. PTSD of being trapped in any kind of a small place. When he came back home, that's what started the drinking. And Judge Alvera looked at Joe and thought, you broke the rules. What would they ask you to do? There has to be consequences. So he sentenced him to one night in prison. One night in jail there at the courthouse. And when they took Joe down to that jail and they put him inside and locked that door, there's no windows and there's these four small walls and he's in there alone. He just about lost it. But it was about 30 minutes later, the door opened up and there was the judge. 
not in his robe, not with his tie and coat, with a blanket and a pillow. He came to spend the night. And so he came in and he said, we ate meatloaf. And we talked about life and family. He stayed all night. And the next day, Joe said, when the judge came to stay, I forgot all about the walls. They just kind of went away. And that night, he brought me home from Afghanistan to North Carolina. He's done so much better now because he knows he's a part of family and he's not alone. There are so many people in this world who are hurting, who need to know they are not alone. And if we're going to be the church of Jesus Christ, then we are called to be those who wind up loving our neighbors ourselves. We look past our differences of Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female. We look past differences theologically or politically. We remember to care for the poor and for one another. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God and that you love your neighbor as yourself. I think Amy Grant was right. It really is just that simple. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.